Dear friends of Jesus Christ, what's it like for you to have your plans upended? To have your vision for the future, that five-year plan or that hope for the future uh, rearranged in some spectacular way? I'm guessing that even the most flexible among us have a hard time receiving life-altering news. I found myself thinking about this as, as I considered Mary and her story. For isn't it true that her life was radically reordered, her plans for the future radically upended the day Gabriel came knocking on her door? Mary. We don't know much about Mary other than what we read about her here in Luke chapter 1. We know that she lived in Nazareth. We know that she was a virgin. And we know that she was, she was betrothed to Joseph. In Mary's day, marriage was a three-step process. Um, first, uh, most, well, most marriages were prearranged. Parents would make a deal or a professional matchmaker would be called in to connect two people in the community. So that was the first step, that prearranged marriage step. Next came the betrothal period. This period lasted for about a year. Uh, the husband and wife, they wouldn't be living together yet, but in the eyes of the law, they were essentially married. And then finally, there was the wedding day. Mary and Joseph were in this middle stage, the betrothal stage. Today, we'd say that they were engaged to be married. Uh, but back then, their relationship had more of a legal status. They were almost, in a way, technically married. If Mary was an ordinary girl following the ordinary Jewish plan for girls, she'd be maybe somewhere in her teenage years, somewhere between 13 and 20, I'm guessing. Thankfully, Joseph, her prearranged husband, was an honorable man. Being set up with an honorable man was about all a simple country girl from Nazareth, could hope for in those days. So in a way, Mary's life was following a pretty typical pattern. It was more or less all planned out. Pretty soon she would marry and move in with Joseph. Then God willing, she'd have some children. Then she'd take care of those children, tend to her house, serve her husband, and in her spare time, maybe volunteer with the social committee at her local synagogue. It was a simple life a simple vision for the future. But for all we know, Mary looked forward to it. Everything was more or less falling into place. But then one day, God came knocking on her door. When Mary opened the door, there was Gabriel, the angel. Greetings, you who are highly favored, Gabriel said. The Lord is with you. We can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, Gabriel's greeting is full of words that revolve around the Greek word charis. Translated into English, charis means grace. Basically, the angel's greeting could be paraphrased or rephrased something like this. Grace to you, you who are highly graced. The Lord is with you. This greeting greatly troubled Mary. She wasn't used to having strange men come knocking on her door with a word from the Lord. What could this mean? Like most everyone in town, Mary was a God-fearing Jew. She, she knew the Bible story. She probably prayed the Psalms. But there's a big difference between fearing the Lord from the safety of your home and having the Lord come knocking on your door. Holy interruptions, even grace-filled ones, 
can be a little troubling. Sensing Mary's troubled heart, Gabriel speaks reassuring words to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, he says. You have found favor with God. There's that word charis again. You have found grace with God. Listen, Gabriel continues, and he shares, shares the news. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Given how Mary responds to the message, I'm not sure she heard past the first sentence, the part about conceiving and giving birth to a son. How can this be? asks Mary. I'm a virgin. Now, if you were here last week, you'll recall that Gabriel was none too impressed with Zechariah when Zechariah questioned him in kind of a similar way. But there's a difference between Zechariah's question in the temple and Mary's question here. Zechariah wanted a sign. He wanted assurance that Gabriel's word would come true. Given his and Elizabeth's old age, he couldn't see how it was all going to work out. He wanted something tangible, a sign. Show me, how is this going to work? But Mary asks a slightly different question. She doesn't doubt the word. Rather, she's puzzled about the process. Mary may not be very old, but she knows how babies are made. She knows that a man needs to be involved. Mary doesn't doubt the angel's news, but she's curious. How will this come to pass? How can this be? And Gabriel's response to her honest question is not a judgment, but an honest response. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, says Gabriel. The power of the Most High will, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called God's Son. In other words, the new creation in Christ will happen a similar way to the old creation back in Genesis. Just as God's Spirit hovered over the waters of creation, or the waters of chaos in the beginning, so the Spirit will hover over Mary's womb. And just as God formed the first Adam out of the dust out of the earth, so now the second Adam will be knit together within Mary. Now you have to know that Nazareth wasn't a hub for hospitality for unwed pregnant teenagers. In Nazareth, this special grace from God would have made Mary a marked woman. I mean, who would believe her story, right? And how would Joseph respond, too? I mean, he legally, he, he could have Mary stoned for this. At the very least, it was within his rights to, to divorce her and move on with life, to get away from this, you know, this shame over here, this, this, this tricky situation. You will conceive and give birth to a son. This was disruptive news for Mary. We half expect Mary to shut the door in Gabriel's face and pretend that the whole encounter never happened. I mean, this is not part of my five-year plan, Gabriel. I didn't sign up for this. Go, go knock on someone else's door. But Mary doesn't turn and run. Instead, she leans in, gathers up her composure, takes a deep breath. May it be to me, she says, as you have said. She responds to God's disruptive grace with faith and obedience. 
Luke doesn't explain how Mary makes the transition from fear to faith, but she does. Perhaps her Sunday school learning kicked in and Mary remembered the promises of God as found in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And later on in chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, Gabriel's, Gabriel's word to Mary is, in a way, almost quoting passages like this from the Old Testament. The fulfillment of these words is happening in the present tense in Mary's life. Or maybe in a moment of clarity, Mary had a new dream begin to form in her head. Maybe she saw the Messiah sitting on David's throne, ruling with justice, establishing peace, and then all of a sudden her dreams for the future became strangely dim. I mean, what could possibly more, be more exciting or meaningful than participating in the renewal of all things? Whatever the case by the time Gabriel is done sharing his message, Mary, Mary is willing and ready to offer her body as a living sacrifice. And the rest, as they say, is history. Soon the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to him, a son. She gave him the name Jesus and wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, for there was no room for him at the inn. That night, we know the story. The angels appeared to the shepherds who were out keeping watch over their flocks at night. Today in the city of David, the angels said, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He will sit on David's throne forever. You know, it is absolutely true what Elizabeth says later in this story. Mary had an extraordinary, an extraordinary and very special role to play in the Christmas story. She is the only woman in history to have the high honor of bearing the Son of the Most High. And for that reason, she is blessed among women. And yet, God's disruptive grace and the invitation to become part of the Christmas story that is ongoing continues to be sent out around the world. God continues to show up at people's front door and invite them into what he's doing in the world. Mary's not the first re recipient of God's transformative favor, and nor is she the last. I mean, way back in Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham, said, you, you, you're coming with me. Leave your family. Leave your land. Go to the place I'm showing you. I will make you into a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. A similar knock came on the door of Moses' life. There he was out, out in the hill country of the Sinai, just tending to his sheep. And the, he sees a burning bush. The burning bush speaks to him. Take off your shoes, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. I have heard the cries of my people. I have come to deliver them. And you, you are going to go to Pharaoh. The deliverance will come through you. 
Samuel was called out and put to use too. So was King David. So was Daniel. So was Esther. So was Ezra and Nehemiah. John the Baptist. The Apostle Paul. So was Lydia. Priscilla and Aquila. Timothy. The list goes on. All these people called out, repurposed, given a new vision for life, a new path to walk, to walk by faith towards the city of God, that city not made by human hands, but whose architect and builder is God. All these people, their lives upended by God's disruptive grace, their visions for the future overturned. Paul is perhaps the finest example of this in some ways. Prior to his conversion, he couldn't imagine himself as an apostle, not at all. That wasn't part of his plan. In fact, the opposite was his plan. His plan was to destroy the church as fast and as he could. But God had other plans for Paul. And one day on the road to Damascus, Paul was graced by the disruptive grace of God. And it turned his world and ours around. When God moves in, when he comes to us, he doesn't just come to forgive. His grace is more robust than just the thorough cleaning of the heart and soul, though that's where it starts. God repurposes the ones he calls. The elect are sent on mission. The goal is not to create a community of the frozen chosen, but a community that is called and equipped to be a blessing in the world. And what could be more exciting? And what could be more meaningful? Isn't there a little part of you that, that longs for adventure, to leave the fishing nets in the water, to throw that five-year plan out the window, and to be a part of something that, though difficult and will involve suffering, will transform and bless the world? Imagine Mary's joy on Pentecost morning, seeing the crowds gather around the apostles as they preached about this man called Jesus who was crucified, but now he was risen and ascended to the right hand of God. Imagine the awe and the joy that Mary would have felt seeing people repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But along the way, imagine all the sorrow all the confusion. I mean, in a way, every day, Mary had to wake up and say, may it be to, may it be to me as you have said. I mean, Jesus, he, he, he breaks down all the expectations for what the Messiah should look like. And then Mary sees Jesus crucified. I mean, what, what could possibly be happening here? She's got that mother heart that's filled with sorrow, but also what happened to the word that was spoken about this everlasting kingdom? She's got all this confusion, this sorrow, but then imagine the joy on Pentecost to see everything come together. Yes, she had to endure a life of shame, but oh, the joy to know that you had a role to play in God's salvation story in the world. Why do I mention all this this morning? Well, the first Noel, maybe 2,000 years in the rearview mirror, but the disruptive knock of grace 
continues on as God seeks after people, calls them out, upends their plans, gives them a new vision for the future, and invites them to join him on mission. Will you answer the call? I've been reading a book recently by uh, David Brooks, New York Times author, uh, called The Road to Character. Um, I can't put it down. It's really quite amazing. And in the, books, uh, in the book, Brooks, um, he tells a lot of different stories about different people and their road to character and formation. Um, and he made a, a, a few passing comments about a German scholar named Albert Schweitzer. Schweitzer, and this got me on some Google searches because I was pretty curious. Uh, Schweitzer, by all accounts, was just a completely brilliant man. Uh, comes, came from a long line of scholars. His grandfather was a pastor. His dad was a pastor. Everyone had multi-degrees and pretty much the smartest people you can imagine. And he followed in their footsteps. He became a Bible scholar, a pastor. He was also a professional organist who wrote books about how to build organs, and he did concerts all the time. Everyone in his family was filled with pride when they thought of young Albert and his promising future in the ministry and in teaching and playing the organ and whatever else he put his mind to. But then one day, while reading Matthew 10 and 11, in the Greek, of course, Albert Schweitzer had his life transformed by the disruptive grace of God. He was reading that part in Matthew where Jesus sends out the twelve The part where Jesus says, take nothing for the journey, just go. As you go, and then this is what Jesus wants them to do, proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And those words upended Schweitzer's life and the vision he had. He immediately rolled into, enrolled in med school, much to his parents' chagrin, and he prepared himself to be a missionary doctor. And he spent much of the rest of his life in Central Africa, building up a mission along a river in what is modern-day Gabon. There he preached, there he healed the sick, there he played the organ, and he took up his place in the mission of Jesus the ongoing Christmas story. Disruptive grace. Brothers and sisters, the King of Kings has come and he is coming again. Mary had a special role in that mission, a special role. But you have a role to play too. Do not fear the disruptive grace of God. For those who lose their life for the sake of the kingdom shall find it. His vision for the future is better than ours. And what a privilege to be called out to participate in that vision and so join the great cloud of witnesses who have set their sights on the city of God. May it be to me as you have said. Amen.